Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The culturally appropriate two segments today, both about some powerful but little understood organizations in the Middle East. Shireen Aladami will tell us all about the Houthis, and Orly Daher will tell us more about Hezbollah. The Houthis, based in northern Yemen, are causing a lot of trouble by attacking ships in the Red Sea in support of Palestinians under attack in Gaza. What the late Bob Fitch called the capitalist hyena press has been denouncing them as a bunch of Iran-backed maniacs. Not in those exact words, but the underlying concept. For daring to interfere with global commerce, which is bad, while Israel is committing mass murder, which is apparently okay. In response, the U.S. has been bombing Yemen to little effect, though Biden said that the bombing will nonetheless continue. The Saudis, who led a coalition that waged war in Yemen in the name of fighting the Houthis for nearly a decade, discovered that to be a fruitless enterprise. They finally gave up on the war, recognizing that they'd lost after imposing misery and starvation in a country of 33 million, with a GDP equal to less than a tenth of Elon Musk's net worth. Who are the Houthis? Where did they come from? What do they want? To answer those questions, let's hear from Shireen Aladami, an assistant professor at Michigan State University and a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute. A native of Yemen, she's been very active since 2015 in trying to resist the war on her native country, which was led by Saudis and fully backed by the U.S. Shireen Aladami. Let's get this out of the way first. The Houthi movement has a catchy slogan, which uh, a lot of people seize on uh, as uh, evidence of its pervasive evil. God is the greatest, death to America, death to Israel, curse upon the Jews, victory to Islam. How seriously should we take that? It is a response to the reality on the ground. The U.S. and Israel have, have been seen as forces of evil in the region. The U.S. specifically has intervened in Yemen over the decades since President Bush and his drone warfare campaign in Yemen, which continued through the Obama administration, which then evolved into the Saudi-led coalition bombardment of Yemen and blockade of Yemen. And so I don't think you find a lot of pro-American voices in Yemen, given their realities on the ground, given the fact that they have suffered the consequences of U.S. intervention in Yemen. The anti-Israel slogan, part of that is, I think, also in solidarity with Palestine and the Palestinian cause which runs deep, not just among the Houthis, but in Yemeni society writ large. And then, of course, you have the anti-Semitic statement in there as well, which I think is a reflection of the conflation of Zionism and Judaism, which is unfortunate. But in terms of taking it seriously, they are a religious movement, a religious political movement. And so you hear those parts of that movement in their slogan. But I think most importantly, They've been a staunch anti-intervention political and military group, whether it's you know Saudi or U.S. intervention. <laughs> they certainly have a lot to be angry at uh, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia and Israel for. <laughs> certainly wouldn't deny that. Okay, so let's do the history. What were the origins of this organization? This particular group started in northern Yemen. The Houthi name comes from a Houthi family, uh, which is just one family of scholars and politicians. They formed a political movement and... Um, were members of parliament at a time. And their grievances were with the Yemeni government specifically because of their close relationship with Saudi Arabia, their close relationship with the United States. And so I just gave a bit of that history with the drone warfare that was happening, the Saudi intervention that happened in Yemen over the decades, whether it was military interventions, but also importantly, religious intervention by Saudi Arabia in Yemen. So this family of scholars turned politicians were outward and vocal in their criticism of the then-president dictatorship Saleh, Ali Abdullah Saleh. And, you know, he responded to them the way he responds to any conflict or critique, internal conflict or critique, which was war. Uh, So they fought six wars between 2004 and 2010 with the Yemeni government and only grew stronger militarily. During that time, the president had enlisted the support of Saudi Arabia, claiming that, well, they're your problem as much as their minds since they border you. And so the involvement of Saudi Arabia began in the early 2000s with the Houthis. But their issues with the government were 
you know, the widespread corruption of the dictatorship and his regime, allowing the U.S. to come and intervene as they as they see fit in Yemen, breaching Yemeni sovereignty in the process, having a close relationship with Saudi Arabia, and also not doing anything about the religious influence of Saudi Arabia in Yemeni society. And that's through their exporting of their religious doctrine, the Salafi Wahhabi sect of Islam, which not just the Houthis, but many Yemenis were staunchly against, given their own, its contradiction with the religious realities and histories in Yemen. And they belong to a particular sect of uh, Shia Islam, right? They do, but they're also not a minority. So about 40% of Yemenis belong to the Zaydi sect of Islam. And the sect itself, in practice, is closer to Sunni Islam than it is to Shia Islam, because the schism happened quite early on. The president that they were fighting against for a number of years also belonged to the Zaydi sect of Islam. So this is not a minoritized group by any chance. Zaydis had ruled Yemen for a thousand years prior uh, and coexisted with the Sunni population, the Sunni Shafi'i population of Yemen. What is their social base? Is a particular ethnic or regional base to them? There is a regional base in northern Yemen, a particular province, like I said, but um, that was just the origins. The Houthi movement today encompasses most of northern Yemen. I think if there were elections today, they would win hands down because they've been able to you know, strengthen themselves and they were seen for the past decade as being the defenders of Yemen against foreign aggression. Meanwhile, other members of Yemen's ruling elite were and continue to be in Saudi Arabia, based in Saudi Arabia, based in the UAE, and um, have allowed themselves to be controlled essentially by the Saudi-led coalition. And so the Houthi movement today is not just a regional or an ethnic or, or religious group. It, um, it's a political movement that has garnered widespread support, as you can see just by seeing those millions of people who've come out in support of their actions in the Red Sea and solidarity with Palestine, and that we see on a daily basis in Yemen. Yeah, those are impressively large and passionate demonstrations. What portion of the population does that represent? Does that move beyond the strictly Houthi organization into a broader population? Oh, absolutely. They've taken on the chant, of course, to show their support for the Houthi movement as their leadership. But they're known as the de facto rulers of Yemen right now. And many people living abroad may not like that. Many people living in Yemen, of course, don't like the support that the Houthis have been able to get from wider society. But I think the attacks on Yemen over the last several years and the role that the Houthis played to defend Yemen essentially from Saudi Arabia and the U.S. has given them that legitimacy among people who would have never been part of their group, you know, in the early 2000s or in the, during the Arab Spring, for example. I've just done a couple of interviews and read a couple of books about uh, Hezbollah and some echoes here that they are popular beyond your immediate base because they're seen as honest and defenders of uh, national sovereignty. Is that something of a fair analogy? Yeah, I mean, it's a resistance that has a religious um, flavor, so to speak, just like Hezbollah. But it, they are seen as resisting foreign intervention. In the case of Hezbollah, it was Israeli occupation of Lebanon. And in the case of Yemen, first, they were frankly brave enough to speak about the corruption and the reality of dictatorship in Yemen. And many of us know that you don't speak about the dictatorship without consequences. And they face those consequences head on. Uh, and then after that, of course, being the basically the only group between 2017 and 2023, 24 currently, to be in battle basically with the Saudi-led coalition, despite being outnumbered, you know, out-resourced, they don't have a Navy, they don't have an Air Force, and yet they were able to get the Saudis and the UAE to sit down and to negotiate a peace agreement that was very close to being finalized before these latest events. Well, they seem like formidable fighters. For 20 years, they've been fighting the, the government and the Saudis and have won repeatedly. Um, right. <laughs> what do you attribute that to? Are they just military prowess, um, uh, passionate allegiance to something? What is this cause? It's aversion to occupation. It's aversion to subjugation by foreign uh, powers. Uh, just listen to, to what they say. Listen to the poetry and the art that they disseminate. But they are very passionate against foreign forces and against um, even being not in control. Like our government for decades has been basically a puppet government, or at least we're very, very strong allies to the Saudis and the UAE and the United States. And so they oftentimes put their own personal interests and the interests of these foreign powers over the interest of the Yemeni population. Most Yemenis agree that this is not a life to live 
to be subjugated is not how they want to live their lives, but they were forced into that reality by dictatorship. I mean, they were responding to military action by the president, but I think ideology drives them. They don't have to have the most sophisticated weapons. They use what they have, but they also know the region very well. Northern Yemen is very mountainous. The reason that Saudi Arabia hasn't faced them in a ground occupation is because they knew they were going to lose that fight very, very quickly. And we know from history that you can't win these wars, especially when you have an ideologically committed population on the ground, you can't win those wars through bombardment, just as we've seen in in, uh, Afghanistan, for example, or um, in Vietnam. People feel that they have something to defend and it's worth dying for. And they've been able to mobilize large swaths of the Yemeni population, not just those. I mean, they would have run out of fighters a long time ago if they were just recruiting people from this one province in northern Yemen. They were able to recruit and continue to recruit people from most areas in Yemen. What is the structure of the organization? Is there membership? What is the uh, the formal structure of governance? That's an interesting question. So Abdul Malik Badruddin al-Houthi is the leader. He's the brother of the founder of the Houthi movement. He's the youngest of six brothers. His oldest brother was 20 years older than him, and he was assassinated by President Saleh in the first Saada Wars. When he was assassinated, his youngest brother took power. Power meaning an ideological driving of force of that movement. Nobody really knows where he's located, where he's based, but you see him making these speeches at key moments and the wider population who joined the movement, you know, pledge allegiance to him, so to speak. But in order to govern Yemen, they've had to forge alliances with President Saleh for a while in his party and have formed a government in northern Yemen that has been able to allow civil society to function essentially since 2015. There was a brief moment between 2015 and 2017 where they worked with President Saleh against the Saudi-led coalition. And he, through his networks in Sana'a, in the capital, they were able to gain into power and be entrenched in that area. When he switched sides, he was very quickly killed within two days after battles with the Houthis. But they maintain that structure of this semi-coalition government where it does have members of the previous governing party and members of the Houthi movement with a president and a defense minister and whatnot. And so that's the structure. There's a, there's a leader at the very top who inspires the movement. And then there are people on the ground who are leading the day to day. And one of the previous Houthi appointed presidents, Samad, he was assassinated a few years ago by the Saudis. I'm speaking with Shireen Al-Ademi, an assistant professor at Michigan State and non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute. Now, you said something a little while ago that before the current troubles, uh, there was a peace deal that was almost done. What happened to that? What's the status of that? What were the um, the, the features of that uh, agreement? The Intercept and others had been reporting over the last year that the Saudis and the and the Houthis were speaking directly and trying to negotiate, but then the Americans were trying to derail these talks. Um, so they were saying things like, oh, well, Tim Lenderking, he's the special envoy to Biden's special envoy to Yemen, for example. He would make statements about, of course, there's a maximalist, I think he used that phrase, maximalist request to ask that oil revenues be used to pay civil servant salaries in northern Yemen, whereas the Saudis were willing to accept that and were saying that's fine. The Saudis just wanted to get out of this war. They've been defeated and humiliated, even though they had a coalition of 16 countries and they weren't able to defeat the Houthis, who, like I said, didn't even have an air force or or a navy. And so they are willing to get out of this, especially since the Houthis were able to target some of their oil fields and the UAE's oil fields back in 2022. The rumors on the ground were that they were close to finalizing an agreement in January, so this month, and they were hoping that the U.S. would not respond to the Houthi rerouting of Israel-bound ships in the Red Sea in order for them to finalize this agreement and move on. The U.S., of course, we know now that has not listened to the Saudis and has, in fact, started this bombing campaign to try to deter the Houthis from rerouting ships. And then designating the Ansarullah or the Houthis as foreign terrorists as well. I think that that most importantly has an impact on the on the talks because the Saudis are not going to want to be seen as having made a deal with so-called terrorists. And they're not going to want to be seen as making deals and creating a peace process with people who are now the enemy of the United States, who the United States is bombing directly. Trump put them on the terror list, and then Biden initially took them off. Now they're back on. But what was going on there? Why did Biden take them off at first? 
Trump put them on because the UAE was complaining that they were terrorists. We know that Trump supported the coalition fully, just as Biden did after him. But the UAE was complaining that the Houthis are terrorists, even though the UAE was bombing Yemen relentlessly over the last several years and blockading and invading. And, you know, there's a BBC investigation that came out today about the UAE's assassination campaign in Yemen using U.S. mercenaries. And so their involvement in, in Yemen runs deep. But to placate the UAE, Trump put them on the terror list as one of his last acts as president. And the Biden administration very quickly reversed that. Now, Biden on the political campaign was saying that he would reverse or he would end the war in Yemen, even though he was part of the administration that began bombing Yemen in 2015. In the announcement that he made in February of 2021, the um, State Department said that they had listened to the UN and to other humanitarian organizations, that they recognized that this FTO would impact the people of Yemen, that there's a dire humanitarian crisis in Yemen and for that reason, you know, and for and for the fact that it was used as a political tool, they were going to delist the Houthis. And it's the fastest reversal of an FTO uh, that the U.S. has ever done. So that's why they were on there to begin with and why they were taken off. And now the fact that they're being put back on shows us that Biden and his administration know fully well that this will starve Yemeni population. They're doing it anyway, and they're using it as a bargaining chip, saying that if you stop the attacks in the Red Sea, we'll delist you. I guess this is how terror designations work now. Things had gotten very dire for the Yemeni population, right? Uh, after all that war, uh, after being bombarded by the Saudis so much. What's the situation now? Have they healed some or are they still uh, in dire shape? Oh, definitely still in dire shape. Um, the blockade is what caused most of the deaths. And these deaths, unfortunately, are not even really properly counted. So think about a country that used to rely on imports for 90% of its needs. So 90% of food and even water used to be imported because Yemen is one of the most water stressed countries in the world and has been for quite a while, which impacts, of course, agriculture and everything else. So going from importing 90% of the food to being blockaded through this naval aerial land blockade by the Saudi, the US, the UAE, the population had to rely on aid to survive. So 85% of Yemenis became reliant on aid. And then that aid was um, also used as a weapon against them because the Saudis still decided what aid could come in uh, and they severely limited aid and, like I said, banned commercial trade and limited medicine and fuel that would come that needed to come into the country. Uh, and we're talking a country of 30 million people most of whom were starving and in what the UN said were famine-like conditions. You know, uh, A child under the age of five was dying every 75 seconds. And I'm not quite sure if those numbers still persist, but there hasn't been a full lifting of the blockade. Since the ceasefire with Saudi Arabia in 2022, Saudi began allowing much more fuel into the country. But again, it still decides what fuel comes in. It still decides how and when and where Yemenis could go. So the airport in Sana'a, International Sana'a Airport, had been closed from 2015 to 2022, and just in the last year and a half has been open to very limited flights to Jordan, and that's it. And people who can afford to get on that plane and afford to pay the visa and afford can afford to pay the costs of uh, seeking medicine or medical care outside or living abroad for a while. Those are the only people who are allowed to, who are able to leave the country. Most of the population still is without health health care. At least, at least, at least 50% of people have no access to health care at all because hospitals were targeted so severely by the Saudi-led coalition. There has been some easing of the restrictions, but the Yemen is still under some form of blockade and the war is still not over because of that. And so they have a lot to lose here. And um, their stance in support of Palestine and the Palestinian people comes at a very great expense to the Yemeni people. That was my next question. Yeah. What motivated them in attacking their shipping? Is it solidarity with the Palestinian people or is there some degree of self-interest involved or is it really just cross-border solidarity? It's absolutely cross-border solidarity. I mean, like you read the slogan at the beginning, Israel is uh, the enemy of the uh, Houthi movement of the Ansarullah. And uh, throughout the past decade, when they were fighting the Saudis, they also made very clear that they're fighting the Zionist agenda in the Middle East, in that region. So supporting Palestine is a genuine act of solidarity. And it's also not unique to Ansarullah. 
Yemenis for decades have been supporting the cause, the Palestinian cause, whether it was uh, under monarchy in 1947 when the king walked out of the UN, the Yemeni king, when they voted to partition Palestine, or in the 60s when the communists blocked Bab el-Mandab Strait in support of the Egypt war against Israel, uh, or in the 90s when our dictatorship, our government at the time, allowed free access to Palestinians working in Yemen and their leaders to live in Yemen as long as they needed during the civil war in Lebanon. And so solidarity with Palestinians runs deep across all forms of government that Yemen has experienced over the last century. And it's a reflection of what Yemeni people want and feel toward their Palestinian brothers and sisters. People who have been occupied know what the consequences of occupation are. And people who have been blockaded most recently understand very well the suffering that they've endured from being blockaded. And what's happened in Gaza and the blockade that was imposed on Gaza is what drove the Ansarullah to impose their partial blockade, the rerouting of these Israel-bound ships. And they've also cited the Genocide Convention. When there is a genocide, states have the responsibility to stop a genocide, and this is their way of doing that. So, of course, it might gain them some, and it has gained them regional clout, but it comes at a great expense because they were very close to making that deal with Saudi Arabia. And that is now, there's a question about whether this will happen or not. And nobody wants to be living under bombardment, but they knew that the risks the risks were high for supporting Palestinians, and they were willing to take that risk anyway. And finally, you must have seen that clip from Biden the other day where he was asked about uh, the bombing and not having any effect on the Houthis, but he will continue to do it anyway. Right. What do you make of that? And do you think they'll be able to crack the Houthis with um, of this style of bombing? Oh, absolutely not. And he knows that. He knows that because they've been bombing Yemenis. They say Houthi targets, but they've been bombing Yemenis since 2015. And um, they know that that only made the Houthis stronger, that they made Yemenis look up to them as saviors, for better or worse. And the movement has grown and the Houthis were able to resist and Yemenis were able to resist bombardment. So to know that the outcome, I mean, it's just, I think, is is an insight into the way Biden into Biden's foreign policy. I've said this before, but you know, Biden has never met a conflict that he didn't want to turn into a war and has never met a war that he didn't like. So we see repeatedly his endorsement and his participation in asymmetrical wars, really, because here in the United States, we're very safe. The Houthis posed no threat to us, just like Iraqis posed no threat to the United States, but he voted for the war in Iraq anyway. Afghans and Afghanistan did not pose a threat to the United States, but you know, he expanded the drone warfare in that country anyway. And Yemenis pose no threat. So the defense of capitalism and the defense of Israel is what motivates Biden and um, the UK and others to launch these campaigns. But they know that they're not going to work. I mean, just listen to what Yemenis are saying on the ground as they're being bombardment. They're basically saying, bring it on. We've defended ourselves against Saudi and the United States has been an active participant in that war in Saudi. So these are just direct airstrikes by the US. But let's remember that from 2015 to 2022, every bomb that dropped in Yemen, an average of 30 a day by some estimates, was a U.S.-made bomb that was purchased by Saudi Arabia. Those pilots were trained by the United States. The airplanes were fueled mid-air by the United States until 2018. So from 2015 to 2018, there were mid-air refueling that was happening. All the spare parts and the maintenance of all vehicles and aircrafts that were used in the war in Yemen were serviced by the United States Army. Um, There were U.S. generals in the command room choosing targets for the Saudi-led coalition. So all of this constituted, of course, a violation of the War Powers Act and Article 1 of the Constitution because we had three presidents go to war in Yemen without congressional approval. And we saw in 2019... President Trump vetoing the War Powers Act that was successfully passed in Congress to end U.S. support for the war in Yemen. So the Yemenis, for them, it doesn't make a difference because they've been bombed by Saudi and the UAE for the last almost decade. And now they're just being bombed directly by the United States without the Saudi pilots showing up essentially and dropping these bombs. So it's not going to deter them. It only reflects a foreign policy that prioritizes violence and retribution rather than doing what most constituents here in the United States are calling for, which is a ceasefire in Gaza, a ceasefire in Palestine. I was Shireen Aladami, an assistant professor at Michigan State University and non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. 
My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. song of In Prison, one of Bella Bartok's four sad songs, performed by Erika Sikle and Istvan Lantos. Next, more on Hezbollah, following last week's briefing from Joseph Daher. It's one of the more demonized organizations in the world, though I'm guessing Hamas is now at the top of the list, but what's it all about? This week, to address those questions, we have another person with the same surname as last week's guest, but of no relation, Aurelie Daher. She is a professor of political science at the University of Paris-Dauphine and Sciences Po Paris. She's been working on issues of political violence in the Middle East for two decades. Her book, Hezbollah, Mobilization and Power, originally published in French in 2014, was published in English in 2019 by Oxford University Press. She uses the word posteron a few times. This is an informal name for the Iranian Revolutionary Guards. Here is Aurélie Daher. There's a popular image of Hezbollah as a tool of Iran. Uh, the relationship is far more complicated than that, isn't it? There is, yes, a popular misconception about Hezbollah, which says that Hezbollah is no more than a puppet in the hands of Iran, getting out of its box when Tehran hits a button and getting back into the box when Tehran orders it to. The relationship between Iran and Hezbollah is a complex one and one that has evolved over time. So it is true that there has always been what I would define as a religious-inspired connection between the two, called Wilayat al-Faqih, translatable literally into the government of the Juris Council, a bit opaque of a concept, I would say, or at least said like that, the government of a Juris Council. Like to make things a little bit clearer. So it's a relation that ties the leadership of Hezbollah, not to Iran in general, but to the Iranian guide of the revolution, not to the president. There is technically no relationship between the leadership of Hezbollah and the president or the government in Iran. So we have more than just one center of power in Iran, and we have to be careful with that. So this wilayat al-faqih tie is not the most important part in the relationship. And I would say the nature and the strength of the relationship have changed more than once over the, the four last decades. So the West tends to see Hezbollah as a creation of Iran. Uh, the idea is that Iran supposedly created Lebanese Hezbollah in 1982 in order to export its Islamic revolution into the Arab world and to have its own militia that would take part in the Arab-Israeli conflict. And that's absolutely not the way things happen. Hezbollah was created by Lebanese people for Lebanese purposes. And when Israel massively invaded Lebanon for the second time in 1982, it was brutal and the Lebanese army couldn't do anything about it was way too weak. So the Lebanese had to find a way to defend themselves by themselves. And the Shia created that militia called, well, not Hezbollah, but the Islamic resistance in Lebanon, the IRL, with no other goal than to defeat Israel and Lebanon, send back the Israeli army to the other side of the border. And later on, they added a network of civil institutions dedicated to communication and mobilization. And that's what is called Hezbollah. So that network of support to the IRL, to the military organization, is what is called Hezbollah. Now, the Iranian contribution was first and foremost a know-how, a help at designing that new militia, because obviously the Lebanese didn't know what they're doing. But that was it. And then Ayatollah Khomeini died in 89. And presidents Rafsanjani and after him, Hamad Khatami, both took a distant stance from Hezbollah. They expected it, for instance, to find ways to self-fund its institutions. 
They said, literally, Hezbollah has to become a party just like the others. By the way, this is where Hezbollah learned how to become financially autonomous. Now, things changed when Mahmoud Ahmadinejad was elected president in 2005 because he is a former Pazdaran himself. And the Pazdaran always kept that tie with Hezbollah. And that led him to take a closer interest in Hezbollah. All the more that the IRL in 2000 managed for the first time in the history of the Middle East to expel Israel from an Arab Arab territory. And that was definitely a, a first. And then 2006, the 33-day war with Israel, again, Hezbollah got noticed. And eventually, that led the Iranians to take a new interest in Hezbollah. The civil war eventually uh, in Syria made the IRL and the Pastoran partners on the battleground, in the battlefields. And that also strengthened the ties between the two. But that made Hezbollah more legitimate in the eyes of the Iranian leadership and more of a partner than just a mere tool in a regional strategy. The organization has a civilian and a military wing. What are their relations? So the Islamic resistance in Lebanon is the original part of the organization. And it's also the matrix in the sense that it is the part of the organization that was created first and then took the initiative to add a whole series of civil institutions, the network that will eventually be called Hezbollah. Now, what we need to keep in mind is that Hezbollah acts as the supporting part of the military. That's Hezbollah's job, to defend the interests of the military part of the IRL. So in domestic politics, Hezbollah works way more like a lobby than a ruling party or an aspiring to rule party. Hezbollah's main role is to work on keeping away anything, any rule, any decision, any project of law that could jeopardize the IRL. A good way, actually, to visualize the way they function together would be to compare them to the Irish case the Irish Republican Army and the Sinn Féin. So the Irish case, in my sense, is is very useful to understand better that dual dimension of Hezbollah. On one side, you have the military doing the job, and then the civil wing is here to transform the military successes into political dividends. Hezbollah originated in the Shiite community, but it's never been exclusively oriented towards that. What are its relations to uh, other groups in Lebanon, which is quite a diverse population? Yes, Lebanon counts actually no less than 18 official different sects. Most of the Lebanese population is is Muslim, mainly Shia, and then Sunni. And then we have a very diverse Christian house with Maronites, Catholics, Orthodox, Armenians, and Nestorians. And yes, Hezbollah can be popular in a trans-confessional way. They have supporters of all confessional origins, but they also have critiques from all sects too. Now, the main non-Shia supporters of Hezbollah support them exactly for that anti-Zionist stand of theirs, the effort that they make to keep Lebanon safe from the Israeli capacité de nuisance, the whole idea of defending Lebanese sovereignty against Israel's harm. Now, amongst Christians in, in particular, they can also be popular for the fact that minorities in general But Christians in particular are always welcome and well-treated in Hezbollah-dominated areas. You know, you can walk in a Hezbollah town with a beer in your hand. Nobody's going to say anything to you. And you can walk also on the streets uh, as a teenager, for instance, as a female teenager with very short jeans, uh, sleeveless uh, T-shirts. Nobody is going to come and bother you. Islam is very important to uh, Hezbollah's ideology, but it's not really an Islamist organization, is it? It doesn't really look for a theocracy uh, on the model of Iran? Yes, they're absolutely not Islamist in the sense of trying to implement an Islamic regime in Lebanon. Islam is important in Hezbollah's identity, actually, way more than ideology. But in the same time, you know, it's a mixed bag. Yes, it is true that the values and and ways of making sense of the world are very Shia for Hezbollah. But as I said, they're not just Shia. Hezbollah can be also quite secular in so many ways. The notion of religious tolerance, defending the sovereignty of uh, of, uh, one's country, there's notions that are shared by a lot of people who are not Shia. And yes, Hezbollah definitely has no intent to transform Lebanon into a a theocracy. Well, first, even Hezbollah members, I'm talking rank and files, but I'm also talking like executives, 
the Shiite community as a whole, let alone the rest of the Lebanese population. Nobody is interested in an Islamic regime in Lebanon. And Hezbollah has always been clear about that. Like, it's an ideal, it's a nice idea. And by the way, they are completely incapable of explaining what would an Islamic regime be? Technically, they talk about the Islamic regime being fair, being strong, but at the same time, that's the kind of qualities everybody would like to see in their in, in their state or in their political regime. It's not really Islamic. We also have to keep in mind that the Lebanese parliament counts 128 seats, and Hezbollah never, ever had at any moment in history more than 10 to 12 seats. That means that in a hypothetical situation where Hezbollah would like to pass a law to change the system into an Islamic regime, they need backup from other political parties. And obviously, as I said, nobody is going to support them in that. The organization has always been very respectful of Lebanese institutions. It's never been revolutionary. What is its current role or standing in uh, Lebanese politics? Hezbollah accepted to be part of state institutions in Lebanon as early as 1990, which is the end of the civil war. We had a civil war in Lebanon for 15 years. Eventually, Hezbollah participated in the first post-war legislative elections of 1992. And that year, it had its first MPs in the parliament. Now, the Syrians during the tutelage that lasted from 1990 to 2005 did not allow Hezbollah to be part of the government even if they wanted to. So Hezbollah had to wait till 2005, year when the Syrian tutelage over Lebanon ended. And that same year, Hezbollah uh, ministers became part of the government for the first time. Now, Hezbollah in politics functions like a lobby and usually on most matters, they're what I would say cool and smooth. I don't know if that's the proper words in English, but what I mean is that they don't care a lot about whatever decision is made, as long as the decisions are not seen as threats to the IRL. You're going to see Hezbollah come and you're going to hear them talk and sometimes very, very, they're going to be loud if you try to do anything that could jeopardize the, the, the IRL. Like, for instance, don't even think of pushing forward a project that would disarm the IRL, for instance. That's a deal breaker. They have also acted lately as mediators between some political parties, especially between their own allies when they do not get along. And this is where Hezbollah is going to intervene and try to reconcile everybody. I would say that the fact that they are rather pleasing with a lot of other parties is actually one of the reasons why they were criticized after 2019. You know, 2019, we had the, that big collapse of the Lebanese economy and the sort of a major socioeconomic crisis. Uh, they were criticized because some people in Lebanon said, OK, Hezbollah maybe didn't steal public money like other parties. They are the parties with clean hands. But all the same, they didn't say anything when they saw it happening. They didn't prevent it from happening. They didn't block any other parties from doing what they did. So they're guilty by association. That's basically the way the Lebanese look at Hezbollah in politics. Now, it's called the Party of God, but it's not really a political party in the conventional sense, the way we would understand it in, in the West. Yes. Hezbollah means literally party of God, but obviously not in the Western political science sense of the notion. Until further notice, God does not run for election. All the same, the name party here was taken from the Quran, and it means more like supporters. So here, Hezbollah would mean supporters of God. And they're opposed in the Quran to Hezb shaitan which is the supporters of Satan. So Hezbollah would mean the good guys or the good people. Now, at a more classic political level, Hezbollah has MPs in parliament, uh, has ministers in the government, all the same. They don't comment much on the details of domestic policies. They're not really interested. They don't have like a sophisticated program on economy, environment, taxes, social issues, like a regular party. But all the same, one has to keep in mind that no party in Lebanon has either. It's not, it's not really a Hezbollah thing. It's more like the way the Lebanese political game is defined. How is it defined? It's a consociational democracy, what we call it consociational democracy. So um, usually we tend to oppose that kind of, of system to one man, one vote systems. So uh, it is a system, it's a political system that is based mainly on community representation, clientelism, 
and negotiation over how to share public resources. It is not really about like carrying ideological programs forward or to achieve programs that the whole population could benefit from in a transconfessional way. It's more like sub-democracies, sectarian democracies, each gets its share of public fundings, and then it's up to every community to organize whatever they want, but like each one of them in their corner. And they've never really challenged that arrangement, have they? No, not at all. They're perfectly fine with it. At the end of the war, in 1990, the Taif Agreement, which is the, the agreement that put an end to the to the civil war. One of the reasons for the end of the war was a promise to change the political system, that consociational system. The problem is what was decided for the Taif agreement didn't meet the expectation of most Muslim parties. And Hezbollah was one of the disappointed parties because they wanted to uh, move to a one-man, one-vote system. They didn't want to go with the sectarian quotas anymore. All the same, eventually, just like the other parties, they decided to go with it and to to adapt and to and to adjust, and that's what they have been doing for the last thirty years. I'm speaking with the political scientist Orly Daher, author of Hezbollah: Mobilization and Power, published by Oxford University Press. You wrote that uh, Hezbollah's typical position in times of crisis is keeping in the background. Now, they've been quite restrained during this current Gaza crisis, although it seems that Israel wants to provoke them. Is this a symptom of their taste for the background, or is it that they're really first committed to defending Lebanon and don't see their mission as liberating Palestine? There are two different things here. So when I wrote that their tastes, they, they have a taste for staying in the background, I meant more related to domestic politics. They don't talk much. They don't act much in, in domestic politics. As I said, they're a lobby. So a num- the number of topics they're really interested in and engage in is, is restricted. But there's something else. Yes, there's that military dimension now to their presence. And Hezbollah has always been clear as far as the Palestinian struggle is concerned. They always said that liberating Palestine is a Palestinian task, not a Lebanese one. And Hezbollah would never put Lebanon at real risk for the sake of the Palestinians. You know, there's a difference between understanding the Palestinian situation, supporting it all the more because the Lebanese themselves had to go themselves through the the experience of the Israeli occupation. And obviously, they didn't savor it. But that does not mean that the Lebanese, and not just Hezbollah, are ready to go all in for the sake of the Palestinians. Lebanon comes first. They've been deeply involved in the Syrian civil war on Assad's side. Why? Complicated question. Initially, Hezbollah and the Iranian regime were not sure that Bashar al-Assad would stay around for long. So they were in favor of a political solution to the uprising. And they called many times for dialogue, discussions between Assad and his opponents. Now, when the Syrian National Council, so see it as the government in exile for the next Syria, if you like. So when the Syrian National Council expressed in 2012 a promise to cut ties with Hezbollah and Iran once they are in power, And to sign a peace treaty with Israel, that was definitely a red flag for Hezbollah. The idea is that they couldn't let an Israeli-friendly regime take over in Damascus and then probably send all the data that the Syrian regime or the secret that the Syrian regime has on the IRL or the IRL's military capacities to Tel Aviv. They couldn't accept that. They couldn't let it happen. So the IRL initially jumped in the Syrian pool in 2013 to at least secure what they saw as a safe haven in the northwest of Syria. So it's next to the Lebanese border of the Shiai Bika. It's in the northeast of Lebanon. Anyway, so they went to secure that haven where Hezbollah could still be welcome and where they could still use the Syrian territory for the military purposes without being bothered by a hostile new regime that would be installed in Damascus. So initially, the idea was to defend their own interests, not as much to save Bashar. Saving Bashar came second. It was, it was a second phase. How do they see the rebel organizations in Syria? I mean, they seem like hostile forces to them. It's complicated because the opposition to Bashar al-Assad is not homogeneous. 
You have all sorts of groups fighting against Bashar. Um, initially, we had like the Free Syrian Army, which is a group of dissidents that left the, the Syrian army, and they were they started as a secular pro-democracy group. Eventually, uh, they had a hard time, um, especially when Jabhat al-Nusra, which is the Syrian al-Qaeda, to, to make a very a very long story short, and and then later on ISIS. Uh, which turned into the Islamic State. So they came into the picture, and that obviously was bad news for the, the Free Syrian Army. They, become, they became the leading forces of the military work against, against uh, Bashar. And that, that obviously was both good news and bad news for Bashar and Iran and Hezbollah. It's bad news because the Islamist or the jihadist organization obviously fight better than the Free Syrian Army. But all the same, um, they're good news because they tend to delegitimize and decredibilize by their ideology, by obviously their uh, rapport to violence, their relationship to violence. They tend to decredibilize the opposition to Bashar al-Assad. And yes, I mean, Hezbollah in no way could see ISIS, for instance, Al-Qaeda as friendly organizations because mainly of their takfiri dimension, which is um, which means in Arabic like excommunicating dimension. The ideology of ISIS, of the Islamic State, has a strong anti-Shia dimension. And they have that whole idea that Shia are unbelievers, they are not true Muslims, they should be slaughtered so they could go to hell a little bit faster, etc. And obviously, Hezbollah actually is, is called Hezb shaitan So the jihadist groups have changed the name of Hezbollah from party of God to party of Satan. So yeah, no, it, it, it is absolutely impossible for the two or kinds of, of Islamic groups to, to get along, Hezbollah on one side and Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State on the other. That's very useful because I think in a lot of American minds, they're all just the same. Scary yeah. Islamists who want to cut your head off. Yeah, exactly. It's an all-male organization. Is there a role for women in it? Well, it is not an all-male organization. The membership, yes, is reserved to male, but not out of misogyny, but because the organization actually defines itself as a military one. So the leadership consider that fighting the military fight is a man's job. And women should stay safe and sound far from the battlefields. So in this discourse, basically, they tend to present themselves as the male or they tend to present the males as the ones who are in charge with defending the society, defending the family, defending women. Okay, So they're doing women a service here by not asking them to fight in battlefields. All the same, there are lots of women involved in the organization and at so many levels. And they're not here just to serve you coffee, if you, if you get my drift. They have like serious positions in the hierarchy, having males working under their command. And I talked about it with several officials within Hezbollah. And they themselves quite openly admitted that women were better than men at certain tasks. Um, and that they were actually quite happy to have these female colleagues around. And I'm going to give you an example so I was told, for instance, that when a fighter dies in the line of duty, it's always complicated for the men to go and <clears throat> tell the bad news to the families and especially deal with the mother's grief or the wife's pain. So they'd rather have you know, their female colleagues deal with it. Same thing with family-based issues amongst the families that are followed by the social institutions of Hezbollah. For instance, when a widow wants to talk about the problems she's facing at home or with some of her kids uh, or some of her in-laws when she wants to talk about how am I going to address sex education with my kids, with my daughters, etc. Again, <clears throat> male Hezbollah members appreciate having female colleagues to, to take care of, of that kind of, of situations. Doing the emotional labor, as we say. Yeah, exactly. The diplomatic work <laughs> also. Finally, uh, to what do you attribute its longevity? Four decades plus. It's not a short time. Yes, actually, it is. It, it is quite a, quite a long time. Um, you know, I was reflecting on it uh, the other day and I realized that um, today's young caters, young executives in Hezbollah belong to the fourth generation 
already. And um, the longevity of Hezbollah was, is based on several factors. The first one, obviously, which is the one that made it all happen, is the IRL's military successes, victories on the ground against Israel. In 2000, they liberated South Lebanon from Israeli occupation. In 2006, they defeated Israel after 33 days and 33 nights of continuous Israeli bombardments over Lebanon. So that obviously is, is a large part of what explains their popularity. But then there's something else, is that on the domestic level, whether we agree with what they represent and what they do, whatever, it is a fact that they are tolerant with people from other uh, confessions. They have proven, I think, they have proved over time that they care about civil peace in Lebanon, that um, every time there's like an interconfessional clash, they tend to immediately de-escalate. And that's, that's also why a lot of people tend to, even if they, again, not necessarily support them with a lot of enthusiasm, all the same, people find them easy to live with. And then... I think that Hezbollah's um, fate is also the fate of a lot of organizations that end up to be successful. You know, at first, people come to the organization to give to the organization. They want to help. They want to, to they're ready to give a lot for the cause. After a while, when, when the organization is successful, then you have another kind of people interested in the organization to support the organization is they turn it around is what can that powerful organization do for me so you also have a lot of people especially in the shiite community but not only because hezbollah also hires christians and sunnis and druze and druzes alike it's also um, a social elevator it's also a way to make a good career if you want to be in politics or or even you know in the engineer whatever lots of job opportunities working in hezbollah or around hezbollah that was Orly Daher, Professor of Political Science at the University of Paris-Dauphine in Sciences Po, Paris. Her book, Hezbollah, Mobilization and Power, was published in 2019 by Oxford. I should say that establishment types have been critical of Orly Daher's view of Hezbollah as not Islamist, suggesting instead that it was keeping their preferences under wraps because of the diversity of the Lebanese population. That diversity challenge isn't going away, so their secret preferences might not be very relevant, though convenient for establishment types to foreground. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go at this, some more bar talk. This from his first piano sonata performed by Martha Argerich. Till next week, bye. <laughs>